You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Bible's open. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our God, you are in the heavens and there is nothing that is hidden from your eyes and from your sight. You see us as we are in truth. We pray that as a result of looking at your word that you would show us what we are in truth. We pray that truth might be the rule and reign of our hearts and our lives and that we might reflect in our, in our lives and in our worship those things which are true. And that we might be able to speak the things which are true of you and true about ourselves. Father, you see every heart and you know how we are and there is nothing hidden from your sight. And so we pray, O oh God, that we might worship you today in spirit and in truth and that we might offer to you that which is you are worthy of and that which glorifies and honors you. We ask that you would look, look now upon us as we look at your word and bless this time and give us insight and understanding into truth that we might know you deeper and more intimately as a result of this. Spirit of God, be our teacher, and may your word be our guide, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter 4, we are looking at verse 24. Just to gather the context again, we will look at uh, beginning of verse 19. The woman at the well, Samaritan woman, said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. After the scripture reading, uh, when I stepped down here after reading John chapter 8, my youngest daughter walked up and she, with a very concerned uh, look on her face and a very concerned tone of voice, she said, why were they trying to stone Jesus? And that was at the end of John chapter 8. And so I explained it to her, and, and I'll reiterate it here just in case it's not obvious to everybody here. At the end of John chapter 8, they tried to stone Jesus because he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. He claimed to be the great I am of the Old Testament. And that last statement of John chapter 8, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He was quoting there Exodus chapter 3, Moses at the burning bush when he asked the Lord, if I go into Egypt, who shall I say has sent me? And the Lord said, tell them that the I am has sent you, the eternal God. And that was a name that the Father, God, used for himself. And so when Jesus in John chapter 8 said, before Abraham was, I am, he was making a claim to deity. Now that was just the straw that had broken the camel's back because earlier in John chapter 8, he claimed to be the light of the world. He claimed to be the truth and to speak only the truth. And then he claimed to be the unique and only son of God in a unique sense and thus to share the nature of God. So at the end of John chapter 8, when he finally made that claim, I am, he was claiming deity and they, in accordance with their law, picked up stones to stone him because that was blasphemy, which was a capital offense. And all the way through John chapter 8, Jesus was uh, keying off of this whole idea of truth, talking about his own testimony. What I say to you is the truth. 
I am the truth. I who speak to you am truth. Everything I say is truth. Everything I do is truth. You can, and he was saying that because of his unique relationship with the Father and because his nature, he by nature is truth. Truth is now the second of these two guiding characteristics which determine what true worship is that we're looking at in John chapter 4. And we're working our way more slowly through this verse, John 4 verse 24, because of the richness of it and because of the subject matter that it is worship and because it is Jesus, the Son of God, speaking about the subject of worship. And so we're kind of taking our way going phrase by phrase and verse by verse. And I shared with somebody this last week, if it weren't for time constraints, then this would have been all one long sermon in John chapter 4, verse 24. It would have been three and a half hours long, but it would have been all one sermon as we've kind of taken our time to work our way through it and unfold the implications of this. And as I'm going to mention a little later on, I'm still leaving more unsaid than I have really been able to say or have even wanted to say. The subject of truth is the parameter out of these two, spirit and truth. It is truth that addresses most poignantly the Samaritan woman's lack and the problem with Samaritan worship. Jesus said it in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. The singular problem with Samaritan worship, other than being in the wrong place, really boiled down to their lack of understanding and truth. You remember the Samaritans only recognized the first five books of the Old Testament as inspired. So they didn't have any of the Psalms or any of the prophets or any of the other revelation of the Old Testament, just the first five books. And so their knowledge and their understanding of God was woefully inadequate, totally deficient, And so in no way could their worship be described as being in truth. It was very sincere worship. In fact, between the Jews and the Samaritans, they really represent the two extremes that we have been trying to avoid as we've discussed worship. The Samaritan worship was very sincere, plenty of sincerity. Sincerity overflowing and emotion overflowing. And all of the expressions of spirit and sincerity and emotion and emoting all over the place in their worship. But no truth. They didn't have anything but the first five books of Moses. No truth. So all kinds of heat, but no light. Now Jewish worship, on the other hand, was the polar opposite of that extreme. The Jews had the Old Testament law. They had the prophets. They had the Psalms. They had all of the 39 books of the Old Testament. And they knew those, those books. They quoted those books. They read from those books every week in the synagogue. They memorized those books. Rabbis memorized whole sections, whole books of the Old Testament. They knew it well. But Jesus's denunciation of that religious system was, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The Jews had all kinds of truth, but no sincerity, no spirit. And so we have been trying to kind of run that middle ground between truth and spirit. So now today we deal with the second of these two parameters, truth. What is truth, and how does it affect our worship, and what are we to make of it when we Uh, apply truth not only to our worship individually outside of here, but also to here. So that's what we're going to look at today. What is truth? What did Jesus mean when he said you must worship in truth? Because God seeks true worshipers, and true worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. We understand what spirit is. Now what is truth? And what does that mean for our worship? The whole subject of truth is quite a major theme all the way through Scripture. And it's a bit daunting to try and tackle what does the Bible say about truth, because it would basically be, all 66 books of the Bible. It's not an easy question to answer when you sort of look at it from that perspective. It's a, a massive subject in Scripture. It's even a massive subject when you just say, we just want to deal with truth as it pertains to worship, because that, just the subject of truth itself, is worthy of a whole series of messages, which I'm not going to do, and you certainly don't want that. We just want to apply it to the area of worship. Just in the Gospel of John, the subject of truth is a major theme. 
no small subject just through John's gospel, which you saw as we were working our way through John chapter 8. The subject of truth, or the word truth, is mentioned in no less than 21 different verses in the gospel of John. 17 of those verses come from the lips of Jesus himself. The word true is mentioned in 20 verses in the gospel of John, 14 of which come from the lips of Jesus. So all told, between truth and true, we see it referenced 41 different times just in the gospel of John itself. And toward the end, of course, is that massive question, what is truth? And that's what we want to address. What is truth? That's a familiar sounding question, is it not? Do you remember who said that? Pilate said that. In John chapter 18, when Jesus was standing before him and claimed to be a king, Pilate asked him, are you a king? And Jesus said in John 18, verses 37 and 38, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my words. And then Pilate said, what is truth? What is truth? And we're asking the same question today in our culture and in our modern world. What is truth? Who's to know how truth is to be known? So, let's answer it today. What is truth? What is truth? Truth is, and this is going to sound very profound at first, but give it a second and you'll realize just how unprofound this is. Truth is whatever really is. Whatever really is, is truth. Truth or true is the word that we use to describe that which comports with or that which is in keeping with reality. Now, I don't have a pen, so I'll use my Bible as an example. I'm holding up here my Bible. Now, the following statement. My Bible is on the pulpit. True statement or false statement? You can verify that statement because you can come up here and you can look at the pulpit and see that indeed my Bible is on the pulpit. I'm no magician or illusionist, so you don't even need to come up here to verify that because you saw me hold it in my hands. You saw me put it on the pulpit. That is a true statement. My Bible is on the pulpit. Now, another statement. My Bible is on the floor. True statement or false statement? It's a false statement because you can look up here and see that my Bible is not on the floor and you know that it is instead on the pulpit. That is a true statement because it comports or describes the way things really are. The Bible is true because not only does it come from a God of truth, which we're going to talk about in just a second, but the Bible tells us the way things really are. Truth is the way things really are. It is reality. There is truth in this world about God, about salvation, about the Bible, about morality, about death, about humanity, about sin, about salvation, about the future, about the kingdom, about eternity, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit. There is truth that exists because those things really are And there are statements about that truth that correspond with reality. So when we say that the Word of God is truth, what we mean is not only does the Word of God tell us the way things really are about all of those subjects and so much more, but that it is the truth about history, it is the truth about creation, it is the truth about all things that it addresses. Now there are true statements that are not found in the Bible, like my my Bible is on the pulpit, for instance, or 2 plus 2 is 4. There are truths that are not revealed in the Bible. There are truths which are true that are outside of the Bible. But when we say that the Bible is truth, what we mean is everything, every last word written in this book is absolute truth. This book tells us the way things really are. And you and I are surrounded by a world that is built upon lies. Built upon lies. Watch the television for Five minutes and you'll see that that's true. Our entire world 
is constructed on nothing but lies. Everything in the world system, everything Satan does, it is all built on lies. Just for a little thought experiment for just a second, I want you to imagine that for the next month, every advertiser, every newscaster, every politician, every preacher, everybody in the world told nothing but the absolute truth. Tell you what, this whole place would come undone like a ball of yarn. The whole world would. Why? Because everything around us is built on lies. And it is all governed by the father of lies who was a liar from the beginning and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And every government is filled with lies, whether it's Republicans or Democrats or quote-unquote Christians or whoever it is that runs it. Every government system in the world is built upon lies. Every advertising scheme in the world is built upon lies. The marketing of every product is crafted to lie to you. Everything around us is lies. Every newscast in the world is built upon lies. It's all deception. Why? Because Satan runs the whole clambake. Everything is his doing. So everything is built on lies. So how are you and I, as children of truth, who have been set free by the truth, how are you and I to know the truth when everything around us is a lie? There's only one way. From the one source that tells us everything we need to know that is true. Because everything in this book, no matter how persuasive the lie might be, you and I can rest on everything in this book because everything in God's Word is true. Now, God's Word is true not because it just so happens to line up with reality, but God's Word is true because its author is absolute truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is truth incarnate. Everything Jesus ever said is absolute truth. Everything He ever did is absolute truth. Everything He ever affirmed and revealed is absolute truth. He is trustworthy because He is truth incarnate. And He is, and this is what got the Jews in Jesus' day upset, He is truth in essence. His nature is true. God is true. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 and Hebrews chapter 6 verse 18 say that it is impossible for God to lie. There is no lie in Him. He is the polar opposite of Satan in that respect. In Satan there is no truth. In God there is no deception and no lying. Everything He has ever said is absolute truth and can be trusted on and relied upon. Because He is in His nature truth. And He cannot deceive. He would not deceive. And He cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie because His nature is absolutely true. And so everything God says in His Word is absolutely true. And so we can affirm from Scripture, all that is in Scripture is absolute truth. Now this cuts right against the grain of our modern-day philosophy, because the modern-day philosophy that we, you and I live around is that truth is not objective, it's subjective. And we said last week, of the two, Spirit and truth, spirit is more subjective. You can't tell if I've worshipped in spirit or not because you can't see the unseen part of me. There's only two people in all of creation that know whether I have worshipped in spirit or not. That is God and me. We're the only two who know that. You can't tell that. Nobody else can tell that just by looking outwardly at what I do in worship. And nobody can tell whether you have worshipped in spirit or not. But truth, truth is not subjective at all. Truth is objective. Truth is something we can discover it is something we can practice. It is something we can know. It is something we can walk in. It is something we can affirm. Truth can be known. In fact, we're held responsible for knowing truth. So truth is not subjective. That is inside of us, something unseen, something we dis, uh, 
determine. Truth is objective, is something that we discover. And our modern culture says, no, 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 no. You have your truth, and I have my truth. They might be polar opposites, they might be oil and water, but that doesn't matter. Don't let the fact that they are completely contradictory confuse you at all. You and I can believe totally contradictory things, and we can both be right. Because all roads lead to heaven. And your truth is not my truth, and my truth is not your truth, and you shouldn't impose your values on me, and thou shalt not judge. I mean, that's, I think, the only thing that the Bible actually says is thou shalt not judge, and we don't want to judge anybody else's truth. We don't want to say anybody is wrong. We want to just walk on eggshells, and let's all get along, and loves and hugs and kisses for all of us. That's called postmodernism. Postmodernism. And basically, the tenets of postmodernism is this. The only thing that you and I can know for certain is that we cannot know anything for certain. The only thing we can be sure about is we can't be sure about anything. And the only absolute is that there's no absolutes. And that is absolutely true. That's postmodernism. It's intellectual, moral, stupidity, and just suicide at its finest. But we know that the truth is not inclusive, it's exclusive. And it is very narrow. There is the truth, and then there is everything else. There's the truth, and then there's the lie. And the lie is everything that is not true. How am I to know the truth about reality and about God and about myself? He has revealed to me what the truth is. And you and I can know it and we can evaluate our worship on the basis of what God has said. Truth is valuable to God because it is His very nature. And if you and I are careless about the truth, if we just say, eh, you know, I'm just going to, the whole doctrine thing, the whole truth thing, I'm just going to leave that up to the elders, the pastors, the theologians, somebody other than me. I'm just not going to concern myself with truth. And I really don't care whether what I think or what I believe or what I read or what I sing is the truth. I really don't care whether the books that I read are the truth or what I'm being told is the truth. I'm just not going to concern myself with any of that. The minute you begin to say that, you are demonstrating exactly what you feel about God's Word and about God's nature. Because if you take truth carelessly and flippantly and apathetic to it, that tells me exactly how you feel about God Himself because He is truth. And so if you approach His Word with flippancy and apathy and carelessness and you really don't care about these things, you're not concerned with truth, it is because really that is your that is your heart's attitude toward God Himself. God does not want us to neglect the truth because to neglect the truth in our worship is to neglect God Himself in worship. And to worship in falsehood or to worship in error is to worship the wrong God. And if truth is not present in our worship, then the God of truth is not present in our worship because His nature is truth. And everything He has revealed is truth. And if the God of truth is not present in our worship, and if we are not worshiping in truth, then we're worshiping a false god and an idol. And we're nothing but idolaters. So truth has to be present. Not just the unseen reality, our spirit, but also truth itself has to be present. Now what are then the implications for our worship? And I told you last week, the worship is not just what goes on here. It doesn't begin and end on a Sunday morning in this location or any other location. Worship is something that goes on in our lives day after day, week after week, hour by hour, minute by minute, as you and I yield ourselves in obedience to God with a submissive heart to His truth and His nature and His person and what He has revealed. And as we honor Him and adore Him and love Him and offer our obedience to Him, that is worship in spirit. And that takes place from Monday morning all the way through to Sunday morning. And all of Sunday afternoon, and every minute that we live outside of this place is an act of worship. And all that we do is worship God. Because we do all that we do for the glory of God. So I would just ask you this question. How is it that you feel about the truth of God in your own life? I'm not talking about when you gather here on Sunday morning. Listen, folks, this is the easiest place in the world to love the truth. Right here, in this building, right now. 
This is the easiest place in the world to love the truth and to live the truth. It doesn't get any easier than this. Because everybody around you expects that. And everybody around you loves truth too. And everybody here is truth. And we're speaking truth and singing truth. And we can all love the truth here. But when you get home, men with your wives, wives with your husbands, parents with your kids, kids with your parents, do you there and then love and obey the truth? Do you model a love for your truth, for the truth of God, and your love for God by loving Him in His Word, spending time in His Word and obeying His Word? And do you as parents bring the truth to bear upon your home and say, this is true, and we will walk in this, and we will practice this because it is true, and we will honor God in truth in our lives? Do you do that? And at work? Be truthful at work? Do you honor and love the truth at work? Do you honor and love the truth when you're home alone in front of the computer screen on the Internet? Do you love the truth then? That's the time when it's most difficult to love the truth. But is that when we love the truth? Because you can't neglect the truth and be careless about the truth and want nothing to do with the truth for six days and then come here and worship in truth. It doesn't work that way. You can't do that. Because then God knows that everything you're doing is just a, a joke. It's just a show. Because this is the easiest place in the world to love the truth. But how about outside of here when you're all by yourself? Then do you love the truth? So how does truth, that's how truth impacts our worship outside of here. We worship God in truth and we honor the truth and love the truth in our families and our workplaces and all of our activities. We bring everything our do, we do under the banner of truth so that we might in all things glorify Him whether we eat or drink in the big things and the little things, the mundane things of life. But what about here on a Sunday morning? What does truth mean to us corporately as we gather together in worship? Because when we gather together in worship, I guess we are assuming that all of us have been worshiping all week long and that we have been worshiping in spirit and truth so that when you come together here, it is the corporate gathering of God's people and all of us together do what we've been doing individually all week long. But how does truth affect what we do here on a Sunday morning? What does it look like? Well, we can apply it to basically two areas, preaching and singing, because those are the two main things that we do here, or at least those are the two things that are probably most intentional and most planned, preaching and singing. Now let me describe to you the mentality of most of modern day evangelicalism when it comes to preaching. This is how most people view preaching. You and I have worshipped all the way up until the last note was played on the piano or sung by the person who sang the music. Then we stopped worshipping and now we have entered into the preaching phase of it. Right? That's what we do. We worship and then Jim gets up and preaches. And most people view preaching as sort of that thing that we tag on to the end of worship to give unskilled people like Jim something to do in the worship service. And that we could, if we just sang songs, then we would have accomplished worship. And if there was no teaching and no reading of the Word, we would still have worshipped because we have gathered together and we have sung songs. That's how most of evangelicalism views worship, the worship service. Now, if that is your view of worship, let me just very gently say, you are absolutely wrong. Nothing could be further from the truth. And you might say, well, Jim, you're just on about preaching now because that's your part of it. And if you actually had any skills and could play an instrument, and if you actually had a voice that people would want to listen to, and you were involved in the singing with all of the skilled and truly gifted people, then you would be getting up here and saying that true worship is when we sing. Not so. I believed this before I ever preached my first sermon, that the central act of the worship of God's people is around this book. Everything we do, everything we do, 
is around this book. Everything. And everything must align itself and comport itself and reflect this book. And so the preaching and teaching of the Word, whether it is me or whether it is somebody else or whether I'm sitting down there listening or Jess or Dave or whoever it is, the preaching and the teaching of God's Word is the central act of the worship of God's people. And there is nothing more central to the, to the worship of God's people than the proclamation, the reflection, the meditation, the application, the reading of God's truth. When you and I sing, we are singing truth to God. When the Word of God is read and preached, God is speaking truth to us. It is a two-way truth conversation that goes on here on Sunday morning. We gather around the Word of God and God speaks to us through His Word and we reflect back to God the same truth, but we do so singing as we sing and read and reflect upon and speak truth to Him as a, as a means of adoration, through the means of adoration and praise. So it's truth that is governing and guiding all that is done and all that we do is done around the Word of God for the glory of God. And the Word of God has to be central to all of it because once you pull truth out of it, then you don't have anything left. And so preaching is the central act of corporate worship. When we gather together to hear Scripture read or preached, we are gathering together in recognition that this is where God speaks. God does not speak through still small voices. God does not speak through nudgings and promptings and impressions. God does not speak through the little red bat phone in my ear where he gives me personal privatized messages. He doesn't speak in dreams and visions. He doesn't reveal himself in any of those ways. Long ago, he spoke to us through the prophets in diverse ways. Hebrews chapter 1, in these latter days, he has spoken to us through the Son, his Son, and then it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. This is where God speaks. And I believe that when the Word of God is rightly preached, the voice of God is truly heard. When the Word of God is rightly preached, the voice of God is truly heard. Whoever the messenger may be, it's irrelevant. When the message of the sermon is the message of the text, you are hearing the voice of God through whichever servant it is, speaking to his people truth. But everything we do is around this book. In preaching, and in teaching, and in our reading. John Stott writes this, Word and worship, quote, Word and worship belong indissolubly to each other. All worship is an intelligent and loving response to the revelation of God because it is the adoration of His name. Therefore, acceptable worship is impossible without preaching. For preaching is making known the name of the Lord, and worship is praising the name of the Lord made known. Far from being an alien intrusion into worship, the reading and preaching of the Word are actually indispensable to it. The two cannot be divorced. Indeed, it is their unnatural divorce which accounts for the low level of so much contemporary worship. Our worship is poor because our knowledge of God is poor. And our knowledge of God is poor because our preaching is poor. But when the Word of God is expounded in its fullness, and the congregation begin to glimpse the glory of the living God, they bow down in solemn awe and joyful wonder before His throne. It is the preaching which accomplishes this. The proclamation of the Word of God in the power of the Spirit of God. That is why preaching is unique and irreplaceable. End quote. And yet in our day, it is being replaced. It is being replaced by almost every program, every gimmick, and every distraction that church leaders can possibly imagine or come up with. 
Friends, you and I cannot lift our hearts or have our hearts lifted by the Spirit of God high in worship and adoration until we have gone deep down into the truth of God's Word. That is why we read it and we study it and we listen to it and we obey it and we meditate upon it. That's why we dig deep in preaching. We can do away with shallow sermons. You know why? Because it brings a shallow knowledge of God and a shallow knowledge of God brings shallow worship. I don't want shallow worship. I want deep worship. How do you get deep worship? You get deep worship when you have a deep understanding of God and His Word. And you get a deep understanding of God and His Word, not by going to seminary, but by hearing the Word of God preached in all of its fullness. And for the glorious doctrines of God and His Word to be expounded and to be understood and to be clawed at and grasped and chewed over in the mind, then we go deep down into the Word of God, deep into His truth. And when we dive deep into His truth, then our hearts are lifted high in praise. And our worship is only transcendent when we have a deep and abiding knowledge of God, and you only get that from His Word. And I don't know who started this vicious circle, but the vicious circle of modern-day evangelicalism is make it shallow and more shallow and more shallow. And the more shallow goes the preaching, the more shallow goes the people's understanding of truth. And the more shallow goes the people's understanding of truth, the more shallow is their worship. And so then how do you get them to worship? How do we get our people to worship? Well, maybe, maybe we should add more lights. That'll do it. Fog machine. That's what we need. Strobe lights. We need maybe the preacher to come down with wires strapped to his back and descend in some sort of a suit or a gimmick. You know what we need? We need a profound understanding of who God is and what God has done in His Word. And when your heart goes deep down into truth, you are struck by awe and wonder of Him and His greatness, and your heart will jettison up in praise to Him. It cannot help but do that. We have today two routes that we can take in our worship when we gather together. Number one, we could use our worship service to sort of gin up a response in people, create the right environment, put together the right music set, do the instruments just right in order to create a response. Get people, get the, allow the worship team to sort of create an emotional wave that the pastor can ride all the way through to that decision time at the end of the sermon. And you can only make the sermon 15, 20 minutes because you got to get to the decision time right after the big emotional at the end of the worship. And that's what you're trying to ride all the way through to the end. You can do that where worship is creating or ginning up people's response. Or we can gather together around the Word and dive deep into Scripture so that worship is my response. Not so that worship creates my response, so that worship is my response. My response to what? To truth. The effect of emotional activity is that people walk away from church feeling good. The effect of truth is that people worship. Why? Because in truth, they see God. And the heart of the child of God longs to worship that God when we get a glimpse of the glory of God. So the central act of God's people in the corporate worship is the preaching, the reading, the teaching of His Word. Now how does it apply to the other things that we do when we sing back to God? Let me offer you just a couple of quick thoughts. Truth, if, if all that we do as we gather together is around the Word of God, then that Word of God, that truth, whatever is true in Scripture, must be reflected not only in the preaching, but also in the singing. In how we sing and what we sing, the words that we sing, the hymns, the choruses, the, the songs that are chosen to be sung, they must be a reflection of God's truth. And they must communicate God's truth. And they must comport with truth. I don't believe that God is any more pleased with heresy that is sung than He is with heresy that is preached. 
I don't think God is any more pleased with, with false doctrine when it's put to tune than He is with false doctrine when it is emanated from a pulpit or, or a preacher's mouth. And yet in our modern-day evangelicalism, what is it where we typically let down our guard and don't care about whether what we're singing is true or not? It's in the singing. That's where we are most lax concerning the truth. Because as long as something is singable, hey, it's good for worship. I mean, that'll get people going. Dave Rich and I, a couple um, years ago, were at a conference where they were doing a little music set before the, the main speaker. And they sang this song. And if this is your favorite song, I'm sorry. Actually, I'm not. This is your favorite song. You have some growing to do. Uh, they sang this song, and I don't even know what the title of it was. I don't know who wrote it. I don't know when it was written or what it was. But the, basically, the gist of the song, the lyrics went something like this. We are the generation of Jacob. We are the generation of Isaiah. We are and uh, Balaam's donkey. We are Jacob's ladder. We are the sons of the prophets. We are. Here's what we're going to do. It was a great big anthem to he. And it was like, and it was almost as if somebody, when they wrote that, just like this. And, okay, that's the first phrase of our song. That's the second phrase of our song. That's the, I had no idea what the thing meant. The whole song. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I have exegeted the most difficult passages in the New Testament and created sermons for some of those passages. I sit down every week and it is my job to take a group of words and to come up with what the author intended them to say. This is what I do for a living. I do this every day of the week. I have no idea what that means. And Dave and I looked at each other afterwards and just went, what? What was that? That meant nothing. Do you think that God takes lightly when his word is abused and misused, quoted out of context, and phrases are just jerked out of Scripture and applied however we want? Do you think God takes that lightly in preaching? I know he doesn't take it lightly in preaching. I don't think he takes it any more lightly in our singing. I want to make sure that when I sing, what I sing is comporting with Scripture, that it is truth, and that it is an accurate reflection of God's word. That I think we have to be passionate about. Because our, the trend is just toward very me-centered songs. I-centered songs. I am this. I want this. I feel this. This is what I am. This is what I think. And, and there's a place for describing and talking about our response to God's truth. There's a place for that. It's all through the Psalms. That is appropriate, but it ought not to be our steady diet. If we got together here on a Sunday morning and I didn't sing a single song that had the word I, me, our, us in it, I wouldn't be offended whatsoever. Sometimes I, I'm in places where I see songs and I think to myself, really, Mr. Worship Leader, the guy whose names are written down here at the bottom, really? You sat down and you thought I waited a whole week to sing about me? I didn't. I waited a whole week to come here and sing about the glories of my God and King. That's what I want to sing about. You can't think of any better subject to write a song about than you? Really? I could suggest a couple of subjects. The cross, the atonement, our God, the Trinity, the Spirit, Redemption, regeneration, grace, sovereignty. Seriously? That's the trend. And friends, we, we have to be vigilant, vigilant to make sure that when we sing, what we are offering to God is not just mindless, drivel, biblical phrases kind of crammed in and expressing whatever it is somebody thought that they were putting up on a screen for whatever but to so love the truth that we say when we sing, I want this to reflect my God and His truth. And you say, Jim, this is your hymns only rant, isn't it? No, 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 it's not hymns only. I'm not a hymns only guy. I like the hymns, but I like the choruses with good theology too. They have to have good theology. 
I could care less whether it was written yesterday or it was written on the day that Martin Luther nailed the, the theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. I don't care what century it was written in. I just want to make sure that it's true. And I don't care if it was Mel that wrote it or Charles Spurgeon. Not that, that I'm not trying to you know, put you on the opposite end of the spectrum of Charles Spurgeon. But I don't, I don't care who it was that wrote it. Somebody I know or some dead guy I've never met who's far more spiritual than me. I don't care who wrote it. Are the words truthful? Are they an accurate reflection of who God is and what God's Word says? That's, that's my only concern. It can be a hymn, it can be a chorus, but does it reflect God? Does it reflect His Word? That's what I think should consume us. That's what I think it means to worship in truth. Your job on Sunday morning is to evaluate everything I say in light of this book. Everything I say in light of this book. Our job is to evaluate everything we do and everything we sing and everything that is said in light of this book. That's what it means to worship in truth. To sing to God truth. To hear truth from God. When we sing, we give voice to truth. When we listen, we give ear to truth. And this is a truth conversation between God and His people. That's what Sunday mornings is all about. It's not about singing. It's not about the guy preaching. It's not about who leads us. It's about truth being who we are. We come back. We attach ourselves to truth. We get grounded in truth. Now, every time I preach, I... uh, I have this churning in my stomach and almost a sickness over two things. Number one, what I, by necessity, have to leave unsaid. And there's plenty of that. And before I preach and while I preach and after I preach and sometimes late into Sunday night, I have this churning in my stomach over what I left unsaid. It's the first thing. causes me sleepless nights. The second thing that causes me sleepless nights is the concern that what I have said is not clear. I hope that this has been clear, but I know that I have to walk away, and this has not been comprehensive. The goal here in these last few weeks, as we've talked about worship in John 4.24, is not to be comprehensive. I haven't been trying to do that. I have left all of the minutia of worship untouched, as it were. Should we raise hands or put our hands down? Sure. Should we clap or not clap? Yeah. Should we kneel or should we stand? Sure. I'm not concerned about any of those things. I believe that when we get together, if we have spirit, and if we have truth, and if we understand the greater concepts of what we have been talking about, all of those little nitty-gritty issues of worship, they just all iron themselves out. And so all of the minutiae I'm leaving for another day, another subject, and even the big stuff. I haven't said everything that's on my heart about the big stuff, but maybe the Lord will grant us leave, and we will have opportunity to address those things in the future but for another day. Next week we move on, John chapter 4. Let me just offer you one closing thought about worship. When we worship, there is something going on here amongst our midst that we cannot see. It is because there is a person here that we cannot see. It is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth who is here. And when we in spirit come together in spirit and truth, the Spirit of truth is in our midst. And I've said this before, when God's people gather together, there is a sanctifying work that is going on, an edifying and equipping and encouraging and exhorting work that happens in us, through us, around us, by us, that you and I cannot see. We cannot see it because more is going on here than meets the eye. And when you and I neglect this, we neglect something that feeds our soul and we neglect it to the detriment 
of our own soul. We starve ourselves. You ever ask yourself, should I go to church today or should I not go to church today? The answer to that is always yes. Unless you're in Vienna and you can't. The answer to that is always going to be yes. Why? Because, friends, you may say, all I, all, I, all I learned and all I got out of it was this, just this little bit. That's all that you know that you got out of it. What happens outside of that, that you're not even aware of what's going on in your heart, that the Spirit of God does as a result of us coming together here. And when that is a priority for you, it feeds your soul. Now listen, we don't come here. We don't come here trying to get that out of it. That's the result of worshiping in spirit and truth. We come here to offer to God worship in spirit and truth. And in the process, we are fed and strengthened and encouraged by it. And so may God make all of us true worshipers who worship Him in spirit and truth. Let's pray together. Our Father, in all that we have considered in this passage and all of the things that we have talked about that have important ramifications in our lives, we, we only desire that You would primarily do one thing, and that is to make us true worshipers if we are not. You see the unseen part of us, and You know what it is that You're doing in our hearts. We pray that You would pull us deep down into Your Word in our love for You and our love for truth so that when we gather together, we might lift our hearts high unto You. We thank You that You are the transcendent God, majestic and high in holiness and awesome in Your greatness. And our desire is to reflect upon You and to sing unto You and to be changed by You and to offer to You the worship that is due to Your holy and magnificent name. Help us in that because we are weak and we are frail And not only do we not even know how to pray as we ought, we do not even without your grace know how to worship as we should. So we pray that you would do that work in our hearts. Sanctify us according to your truth, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.